John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 95 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I'm your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting bravely from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at individual, the number one pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. Well, in episode number 94, I told you that here in the United States of America, the statistics regarding the impact of the coronavirus were going to explode over the next couple of weeks and that the panic which had already gripped the nation, would get worse, maybe even far worse. And that is happening. It's happening exactly as I told you that it would be. This crisis, and it is absolutely a crisis, maybe the worst crisis uh, this country has faced, maybe even worse than 9-11 in some ways, although I'm not 100% sure yet that it's based in reality. A lot of it is a self-fulfilling prophecy driven by panic. We'll talk a lot about that during this episode of the Individual One podcast, but this crisis more than any other that I have ever been aware of, certainly in my lifetime, has been driven by data. It's almost a completely data-driven crisis and panic. And one of the more frustrating aspects of this is that the data we have is horrendous. It's bad data. Every data point we have is in great question. We don't know, uh, for instance, whether or not the Chinese data, which has gotten much, much better in the last couple of weeks is trustworthy or not, because it's the Chinese. We are told that the data is trustworthy, but I don't have a lot of trust in it, and most people don't. And and because they haven't gone back to work in any way close to 100% capacity yet, and because now they're, they're even kicking out American reporters from our major media outlets, there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical of what's going on in China. 
elsewhere. We don't know. Even sometimes the definitions of what it means to have a confirmed case, what it means to have a, a case resolved, uh, whether or not there are more cases in the pipeline, uh, what the death rate is, because we don't know how many people have actually had this. And in, in this country, that's a particularly bad problem because we have been horrendous horrendous on the issue of testing. Correct. And it's largely, if not totally, the fault of the Trump administration. Correct. This is probably the biggest mistake they have made. Now, why they made it, I don't know. And I'm not one for 2020 hindsight on these types of things, especially when a lot of times what we see here, and I think this is a classic example of it, the rules are now changing after the game has been played. That's a large part of what's happened here. And I at least have some semblance of sympathy for the Trump administration because we are now changing the rules. You know, if you look at how we handled the swine flu during the Obama administration, that resulted in 275,000 people being hospitalized, 12,500 people dying. You never heard hardly anything about it. There was no panic. There was hardly any media coverage of it. Uh, you could argue, Trump has said that, that our response to that was a disaster. But the rules were that people die during flu season. These are these are these are the realities of life. Well, now all of a sudden we've decided for some reason on this particular case, those rules have changed. And the reality is, for whatever reason, we don't have enough tests. We still don't have enough tests in some in some ways. Uh, the testing is incredibly arduous. And because we don't have proper testing, we don't have good data. And when you don't have good data, you can't make sound decisions, especially when you're in the middle of a panic. And that's what this absolutely is. So you have a perfect storm of people panicking, leaders being invested in a panic, leading a panic because they don't want to be the ones that get blamed for the worst possible scenario. And the other side that isn't panicking, this, the minority of people, don't have enough good data to be able to weaponize to say, hold on a second here. Because even I, who have been in the top 0.001% of people saying, hold on, this seems like an overreaction. This seems like we are doing things that are harming ourselves, cutting off our nose despite our face. Yes, this is bad. No one has ever, at least that I know of, I certainly haven't said, this isn't going to be bad. But it's a matter of how bad and what we are willing to create as far as costs in an effort to try to combat this and whether or not that makes sense in the larger scheme of things. And even I have been somewhat hesitant in going full bore in that argument because we don't have enough data. And as I said, at least reliable data, as I said in the last episode, the data we're going to get and are getting is going to be much, much worse here in America over the next couple of days. President Trump's press conference just had an administrator who made that exact point that in the next five or six days, the data now that testing is, is more prevalent and more cases are being taken care of, the data is going to get much, much worse. Currently, we have over 7,000 confirmed cases in the United States. But what I continue to go back to, the one piece of data you can feel confident in that we know almost for sure and that we can interpret in some rational way is the number of deaths. You might not know how many people actually have this. Therefore, you can't de determine how contagious it is. You can't determine what the death rate is. But especially with all the publicity this has been getting over the last month, I'm confident that we know within a few uh, you know, people how many people have actually died from 
coronavirus. We know this. And right now in America, that number is just over 100. Just over 100. Now, it's going to get worse. No question it's going to get worse. If you look at the curves, if you look at the graphs and the charts, every other country has gone through almost exactly the same pattern. Uh, you know, and, and obviously a lot of people have compared us to Italy. And this is, a, this is, there's a lot of elements to the perfect storm of panic here. And one of them is Italy. I referenced this in episode number 94. Italy has obviously gone through a horrendous situation. They have, uh, I don't know the exact number in front of me, but I think it's close to now 3,000 deaths. They have over 30,000 confirmed cases. Italy has about one-fifth the population of the United States of America, and it's obviously a much smaller landmass. They are going through a, a health care crisis, partially because a number of these cases, I think about 8% of the cases they have, are actually within the health care industry. And that goes to something that I think is being lost, one of many things is being lost in all this, is that it's not just whether you get this coronavirus, it's how much of it you get that impacts what your final result is going to be. That's why we've seen a lot of people in the healthcare industry die because of this. Because when they're exposed, they're exposed far more dramatically than an average person who might only get exposed to it in a small way and therefore might not have even any significant symptoms. So Italy is absolutely in a crisis. I get that. I'm not diminishing that. However, there's a couple things regarding Italy and the comparison to the United States that I don't think are valid and that we are using Italy as a and the media is using Italy as a way of facilitating more panic here in the United States. There are some very significant differences between Italy and the United States. And one of the things is I've gone through the data that had really come, came as almost a shock to me, although it shouldn't because I've seen this many, many times before where narratives are false. But it's even the Trump administration, at least our Surgeon General, who ha helped facilitate this narrative that somehow Italy is a couple of weeks ahead of us and that we are headed towards where Italy w was or is. That is not an argument that I think is borne up by the, the data that we currently have. When I look at the data, and it couldn't be more obvious, we started getting cases in the United States almost exactly the same time Italy did. In fact, even a couple of days sooner. We started getting deaths almost exactly at the same time as Italy did. And at first, our death rate, which was incredibly small uh, a couple of weeks ago, was actually slightly ahead of Italy. Then Italy blew past us and is now way past us. And even in Italy, and I, I hesitate to, to try to claim there's some reasons for optimism here, uh, but I think some people need optimism in this, in this realm of panic we're in. If you look at the last four days in Italy, there has been a leveling off, this, which has happened everywhere else. It hasn't gone down yet, but it's not getting worse. There are not more new cases and more new deaths on a daily basis in Italy anymore. Now, that could change. It could get worse. But if it follows the same graph, the same data pattern as it did in other countries, then it's going to start going down and eventually will dissipate. Now, I realize that they've taken draconian measures. They basically shut down the country. 
But there's a lot of differences between Italy and the United States. There's, there's geographic differences. There's population concentration differences. There's the age of the population. There's the, the percentage of smokers within the population. There's cultural differences with regard to how touchy-feely people are. There, the healthcare differences are much more dramatic than are being portrayed. We in the United States have several advantages over Italy that are not being uh, taken into consideration. Some of which, by the way, uh, I think we are self-defeating and, and diminishing out of our own panic. I am, uh, based upon what I see of the data, and I am I'm anticipating that in the next few days, we're going to see cases in the United States probably go up to 20,000, maybe 25,000, who knows, maybe even more than that. We might get to the number of cases of Italy. You got to remember, we have five times plus the population. But I continue to go back to that number of deaths because that's really when it comes down to it, right? That's what matters most. It's the number of deaths. And the number of deaths is going to go up in the United States too. But the number of deaths right now is at an extremely, by historical measures, extremely manageable number. Even if it starts to go up exponentially, it's going to still be and an extremely, from a historical standpoint, from by historical standards, it's going to be at an extremely manageable level. I, I keep using, because Trump has used it and because it's a recent example, and therefore I think it's relevant, the swine flu. 12,500 people died in the swine flu. Now, that took over a much longer period of time than what, what we're going to see here with this particular epidemic, this pandemic. But it's as close to an, a, a, an example or a comparison as you're likely to be able to get, at least in modern times. I don't see how, based upon the current rate of growth and, and how every other country has done in this and the draconian measures we're taking to combat this, I do not see a scenario where in the next month we're going to come anywhere close to 12,500 people dying. Now, could I be wrong? Absolutely. I'm not an expert. I'm just using my common sense I'm looking at the data. I'm extrapolating the data. I'm looking at how every other country has handled this. I I just do not see it. And if I'm wrong, I'll be the first person to admit I'm wrong. I am am always the first person to be willing to admit that I'm wrong. But what has been so incredibly frustrating to me in watching our reaction to this is that there is, because these new rules are now being created, and I see this constantly, I realize that Twitter is not real life, but I get attacked on Twitter on on an almost minute-by-minute basis from people who are saying, well, John, if we overreacted, that's good. Um, uh, Okay, if your only goal is to keep down the death rate in the short run, as much as possible, if that's all that matters in life, if that's the only factor that matters in life, okay, you're right. Um, But if that's the only factor that matters in life, then we might as well shut our lives down. We might as well shut life down. And by the way, that's what we're doing. We're, We're shutting life down. It's continuing on almost an hourly basis here in California and throughout the United States of America. We're shutting life down. Down, we're sh- we've shut down the border with Canada. Uh, you know, schools are closed. I mean, I'm gonna get to more of all that uh, shortly. But I mean, it, it, we might not even be able to do this podcast moving forward because the the where we do it might be shutting down. So uh, it, it it's it's just amazing how much of life we are shutting down. And if that's the standard going forward, 
God help us all. Because um, you know, the, the, I, as I've mentioned before, and I'll mention it again because it drives people crazy, but it's the best analogy I can come up with. If this is the standard, if the standard is we must do everything we think might lower the anticipated death rate of an event, then why are we allowing car travel? Why are we allowing car travel? 100 people in this country die every day, although it's probably less now because no one's on the roads. But on a normal basis, 100 people die in the United States of America every day because of car accidents. 100 people. We know it. We know that's what's going to happen. We accept it because we have decided as a society that uh, it is, it's just not worth ending all car travel and all the incredible costs that would create for our society in order to save 100 healthy, healthy lives a day. Now, I'm okay with that calculation we have made as a society, but now we're contradicting ourselves. Now we're deciding, no, 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 no. We must destroy everything in order to maybe save some people who are not healthy. That's where we are right now. And, and that's, that's not an exaggeration. It's just flat out ridiculous. It is, it is not accepting the realities of life. The reality is that this virus, especially here in America, is targeting, with, as far as potential death, people who are much older and much more unhealthy than the average of the population. That is an absolute fact. And for those of you who are, are not certain that that's really true, because, again, we don't have good data, I would ask yourself, I would ask you to ask yourself, um, why are we not hearing, or is it relevant that we're not hearing any of the specifics of the stories of the people who have died? We're just hearing, we're not even hearing names. We're just hearing maybe a few ages. If you look, if you have to, you have to look into the best websites to find out how old the people were who died. And they're almost all old or had health issues. But here's my point on this. If there were young people or healthy people who were dying from this out of the blue, we would know about it because the news media would be all over it because that would be a massive story. The fact that we have not heard that at all indicates that it's not happening, that there are no healthy children that are being killed by this. There are very few, if any, healthy adults, and that the vast majority of people, if not all, who have died from this are those who are much older or who have underlying health issues. Now, does that mean their lives don't matter? Obviously not. It's absurd. I mean, I have a father who's 79 years old. I have in-laws who are in their late 70s and early 80s. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. But but the reality is that, guess what? Um, the flu bugs kill old people every single season. Old people die. It's unfortunate. It's sad. It's the reality of life. And... In every other situation we've had, and I, I understand this is, if you want to compare it to the flu, by all accounts, it's very, very bad. It's worse than the flu. It's the flu on steroids. I get that. It's still in the same ballpark. You can still make an argument, by the way, 
because we don't have the data to know for sure. But there's a way to look at the data that indicates that the death rate is not that much different than the common flu, depending on uh, you know who you are, what your situation is. So we're, we're going to eventually know this. We don't know it yet. But we are ignoring the realities of life in shutting everything down. And I, and I am not in any way, shape, or form, this is the other thing that drives me crazy. Somehow, in the public reaction, and you see this on social media, there's only two choices in the minds of most people. Shut the whole world down or do nothing. As if those are the only two choices. Those are the only two choices. You cannot be serious! That's not the equation. There are more choices than do nothing. And I get accused of saying that I want people to do nothing. No. No. I'm all for rational precautions. I'm all for, when it came to the sports situation, I'm all for, you know what? You don't want to have spectators, don't have spectators. But now that we have testing, I think there would have been an enormous psychological benefit, enormous psychological benefit to most of these sports going on without spectators. If only from the standpoint of giving a population that is panicked and bored uh, and looking for something to do, to have something to watch on television for some semblance of normalcy. Because I'll tell you what, a large part of this equation that we're not taking into account when we decide to shut down all of life is the negative costs of that that are hidden. Because there are many. It's, and it's not just the psychological cost of there's not going to be a, a Masters this year or, or March Madness basketball tournament. I'm talking about people who, um, who are depressed, I believe that suicides will go up. I believe the murder rate will go up, especially as the panic really starts to begin and people don't have food, they don't have money, they've been cooped up for a month. There's going to be all sorts of residual costs from this that no one wants to consider because we're all now invested in doing everything we possibly can to beat the virus. As if you don't, if you're not willing to do anything or everything in a, in a, pretend attempt to beat the virus because some of the things we're doing will do nothing to beat the virus. It's all about signaling your virtue or making yourself feel better or or protecting your own ass. If you're a leadership position, because you don't want, you know, you don't want to be accused of not having done enough. But the the reality is that uh, no matter how much we do, there's going to be costs here and we are exacerbating our own costs for reasons that don't have anything to do with beating the virus. And somehow, if you're against overreacting, you're now in favor of the virus. You're in favor of the virus, and uh, which is really bizarre in my situation. You're now somehow pro-Trump. I mean, this is the Individual One podcast. <laughs> it's, it is all about uh, criticizing Donald Trump from a conservative perspective. I, I loathe Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not defending hardly anything he's done in this particular situation. I believe that if he was not president, we would not be in this situation. And it's not just because somebody else, say Hillary Clinton, would have handled this differently. It's because the reaction to it, if Hillary Clinton was president, would have been completely different. Completely different. There would not have been this level of mistrust. There would not have, the media would have applauded her for trying to remain calm. Uh, And you know what else would have happened? I believe that if Hillary Clinton was president, the right-wing media would have been unleashed 
to stand up against overreaction. That would have been the, the right, you know, I'm one of the few standing up because I'm not invested in this whole pro-Trump thing. I'm not a member of the state-run media. I'm not a member of Colt 45. So I'm going by my natural inclinations of, hold on a second. Are we defeating ourselves by overreacting here for something that we can't control? And that would have been the right-wing media reaction if Hillary was president. And standing up for that principle would have had an impact because it would have given some political cover to some organizations who wanted to stand their ground, who didn't want to shut down life. And uh, I'll tell you, the other thing that would have happened if, if Hillary Clinton was president, people would not have become invested, like liberal academics, would not have become invested in advancing this narrative of disaster because that would have made her look bad. So they would have been less likely, more hesitant to to pull the plug on everything. It's not conscious. It's not a conspiracy. It's just the way human beings work. And and I'm somebody who, um, one of the few conservatives who has admitted publicly many years ago that I wish Hillary Clinton had been elected. It would have sucked in a lot of ways, but right now, boy, we would be a hell of a lot better off. A hell of a lot better off, especially as conservatives. And that's a whole other issue, you know, I'm sure we'll get into in a future episode of the podcast, assuming we're able to continue to produce it. But the, the reality is that uh, if, if Hillary was president, everyone would be reacting very differently, including the conservative media. And, and we have gone completely insane on this based upon the current reality based upon the historical standards. We are pretending that, that this is not a part of life. I am not suggesting we do nothing. I am not suggesting this isn't really bad. It is absolutely bad. It's going to get worse. These numbers are going to get worse. Part of the problem, one of the many parts of the problem, this is all a perfect storm and there's many elements of the perfect storm. One of those elements is that there is about a two or three week lag in the data. So the data we're getting and we'll be getting in the next few days is actually from cases that that uh, where someone got the coronavirus two or three weeks ago. It's even worse than I thought it was the last time we taped an episode because I got new more information about how this process works. So there's about a two or three week lag. So what I believe is going to happen here is that you're going to see in the next up to a week, an explosion in the number of cases here in the United States. I do not know to what number that's going to get. You'll see an increase in deaths. Then you should see a flattening. And my guess is because of the two or three week lag. And now, you, you know, at this point, we're about two weeks into the complete hysteria, one week into a full basic lockdown of the country. So then in two or three weeks, we should see a dramatic decrease in the number of cases. And that will actually be reflecting a reality that has already happened because of this two or three week lag. I mean, and, and you know, part of why I still think that uh, we're in the overreaction stage here is just here in Ventura County, where, where I currently live, uh, much like in South Korea, because we now have enough data to, to discern, all right, how many people are getting tested and how many people actually have it, 
the the rate of people who are tested and actually are found to have it is almost microscopic. Microscopic. In South Korea, it was, I, th- I can't remember if it was 4% or 6%. It's, I think, 7% most, uh, in most of the United States. And, and here where I live. You know what that tells me? That tells me an enormous amount of people think they have this and don't. I mean, that is an incredibly small number of people when you, you do get tested. Remember, to get tested, you have to have symptoms. You have to be convinced you have it. You have to be motivated. You have to go to the hospital. I mean, these are the people who are, who are most impacted by the reality of, of their symptoms as well as the hysteria in the, in the media. And I'm, I'm, ast- I'm actually astonished that the number of people who are going to hospitals does not appear to be greater, if only from the standpoint of being hypochondriacs. Because every single American, every single uh, person who has any kind of a symptom is automatically thinking, oh, my God, I might have the coronavirus, which they're thinking of as a death sentence when it's not. So they're going to go to the hospital, which, by the way, destroys a huge portion of the entire argument for shutting down life. The argument for shutting down life is we flatten the curve, right? So that we make sure that the healthcare system does not get overwhelmed. Okay. But in creating hysteria, you're also creating up to 95% of false cases. People who are getting tested, people who are going to hospitals who do not have this. How does that help flatten the curve? The, the, the curve only would get flattened if we had some sense of rationality and people were urged to stay calm and they didn't overreact as soon as they start getting a cough or getting a fever. Because there's lots of other reasons to have a cough or a fever. And yet we're still not, and this might change dramatically, this probably will change dramatically, while we are preparing, probably too late within our healthcare system for a giant influx of new patients, we are not seeing yet any evidence that our hospitals are being totally overwhelmed. And part of the reason for that is almost, I don't know what the percentage is off the top of my head, it's about 40% of our cases are in New York or Washington state. I mean, here in California, as of last count, a, a state with, with well over 30 million people, probably way more than that considering the illegal population, we have less than 1,000 cases, which is astonishing considering the fact that we have an extraordinary amount of travel with China before that was shut down. We have a, a, a huge Chinese population here in California. And, you know, one of the more interesting theories that I've heard, and I'm hesitant to uh, to buy into these theories because I I remember there's a phenomenon uh, that this happens every time there's a massive news story. But we saw it after 9-11 where it's just a human inclination to want to be part of the story. It's just it's just the way human beings are. But I have spoken to a couple of people who I consider to be very credible people. They are they're not panickers. They're honest people. They're smart people who are a thousand percent convinced that they already had this, that they had it and it, it was bad, but it, it, and it was weird and it was different, but it went away and they didn't even have significant uh, medical treatment. And so that part of if that's true, then 
almost everything we think we know about this thing is wrong. And maybe we'll know more about that as testing becomes more prevalent. But there's so much unknown. And that's the part of this that is so difficult for a logical person like myself to comprehend. That we are destroying so much of our society, so much of our economy, causing so much pain when we don't even know the full set of facts. We don't know. We have no idea what's really happening, what the real nature of the danger is. And going back to the first point we, we made in this podcast is because we don't have good data. We're going to start to get good data in the next few days, and it's going to look bad, and the panic's going to continue. The stock market's already below 20000 It's probably going to keep going lower than that. It's lost a third of its value. Almost all of that since President Trump urged people to buy stocks because he said they were looking very good to him. Correct. Which is just unfrickin' believable. It's just flat out ridiculous. But, you know, now there's a plan uh, promoted by Mitt Romney, of all people. <laughs> For a month and a half ago, Mitt Romney was persona non grata. <laughs> wasn't even allowed in the Repu- in the meetings for the Republican Party in the Senate. And now his proposal of paying each American $1,000 is apparently going to get done, which is amazing. And uh, we don't know the details of that yet. We don't know when it's going to happen. But, I, you know, Trump talked about it at the press conference today. And it looks like every American is going to get a paycheck from the U.S. government. Now, look, we are a long way, long way from Trump being able to uh, somehow declare victory here. But I do find it to be somewhat uh, jovial in a very serious time. I do find it to be a little comical that Democrats and and alarmists and Trump critics are all salivating over having destroyed Donald Trump when they have now created a situation where in an election year, Donald Trump is going to be allowed to pay each voter $1,000. Think about that, folks. Think about that. You know, that. Is that not amazing? You have him, you think you have him by the balls. Yet you've now created a situation where Donald Trump is going to personally pay each voter $1,000. Correct. Boy, wow. Put me in that briar patch. I mean, and I'll get to this in a little bit, but there is still a scenario. It's diminishing. It's fading because now everyone's deeply, deeply invested uh, in this narrative of this is the worst thing that's ever happened. But there is still a scenario where Trump comes out of this looking all not that bad. But uh, before I get to that, uh, you know, I do want to talk about Trump himself because this is the Individual One podcast. And, you know, Trump has completely shifted gears. I talked about this in the last episode of the podcast. Uh, He has turned into the curve and now he's lying about what he said previously. It is an absolute 100% fact that at the beginning, he downplayed this in every possible way. Correct. And now he's pretending that that did not happen. And in fact, he's even laughably trying to claim that he knew that this was a pandemic before anybody else did uh, in 100... an 80-degree reversal from his original position on this. And that's what uh, here's what that sounded like at a press conference yesterday. I've always known this is a this is a real this is a pandemic. I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. All you had to do is look at other countries. I think now it's in almost 120 countries all over the world. 
no, I've always viewed it as very serious. There was no difference yesterday from days before. I feel the tone is similar, but uh, some people said it wasn't. <laughs> it's amazing. It's right out of, you know, George Orwell's 1984. And you know what's amazing? Most amazing? It's probably going to be effective. Correct. At least with his base, it will be effective. Trump, in, in, a, in a very uh, Reader's Digest fashion, here's what Trump did on this whole thing. He, during the beginning of an election year, he thought he could downplay it and hope that it wasn't going to be a, as big a deal and that we were going to treat it like any other flu outbreak that is not a major news story. And he didn't want any blemishes uh, on his record going into an election. When he realized that wasn't going to fly, either because of reality or perception or both, and that there was this cancellation contagion and the stock market crashed and everyone decided they were going to shut down life, he realized that was no longer an option. And he smartly pivoted. He turned into the curve. He's now referring to himself as a wartime president. Correct. So now this has gone from being nothing to being a war. And now he has wartime powers. Among them, giving each American maybe $1,000 each in an election year. So uh, this, he has done politically the smart thing. From an from a honesty standpoint, it's absurd. It, it is absolutely insane. You cannot be serious. I mean, when you, but he's going to get away with it. And part of the reason he's going to get away with it is because the right-wing media is playing right along. They're also pretending that they were the ones warning you that this was a huge deal and we were headed for major trouble. Here's Sean Hannity, who was leading the charge a couple of weeks ago, that this is all much ado about nothing and would still be doing so if Hillary Clinton was president. But here he was last night. That the number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the U.S. that is rising. There are now more than 6,000 confirmed cases in the United States. We've been telling you this is happening. Sadly, over now 100 deaths in the U.S. Now, those numbers, as I've been saying, will likely rise seemingly and dramatically in the next days and weeks. Yeah, as he's been telling you, as he's been telling you yesterday. <laughs> I mean, but this is a symbiotic relationship. The, the right-wing media sees where Trump is going, so they must follow because they can't have their cult leader uh, be contradicted. I mean, he's the one saying he's a wartime president now. So now we're at war. So the right-wing media is, is following their marching orders. Again, if Hillary was president, that's not what they would be doing. If, if Hillary was president, Sean Hannity and others would now be saying, hold on a second, can we have some perspective here? Is this worth destroying our entire way of life for? Yes, it's going to be terrible. Yes, people are going to die. Yes, we should do everything we can to keep that number within reason, within reason, without shutting down our lives. We should do everything we possibly can to keep that number as low as possible and provide as much treatment as possible. And yes, we should be prepared for a run in the hospitals. All that is perfectly fine. But shutting down life is counterproductive in the short run and potentially devastating in the long run. One other thing about Trump, uh, he is now embracing, this is all part of his narrative because he's kind of figure out a way to get out of this. He's now going out of his way to refer to this as a Chinese virus. He did this on Twitter. And boy, wow, I'll tell you something. Uh, I was stunned 
uh, because when he got uh, called a racist for referring to this as a Chinese virus, I simply tweeted, uh, look, this is a classic example. NBC had tweeted uh, what Trump said, calling him a racist as a news story. And I said, this is why Trump fans don't trust anything the mainstream news media says about him, because it's not inherently racist. Now, I'm not naive. I realize what Trump is doing, but Twitter isn't doesn't give you enough space to be nuanced or to provide context. So I'm, I'm not a moron. I know what Trump is doing, but there's nothing inherently racist about calling a disease or a, a virus that started in China a Chinese virus. Now, again, I realize it's a dog whistle. I realize Trump is trying to duck responsibility. But that was my only point was there's a reason why Trump fans don't trust the media, and it's because you're calling this racist when all you're doing is calling a virus where it happened. Oh, my gosh. My timeline uh, for the last two days has been completely flooded with people who are out of their freaking minds upset about this. Correct. And I I think there's a lot of reasons for it, including the fact that our nerves are already frayed early into our our quarantine period, and it's going to get much, much, much worse uh, here in America. Uh, but, But it does illustrate to me how much, how much of... The reaction to this is being driven by hatred of Donald Trump, and he deserves a lot of blame for it. Uh, But at the press conference today, he did not back off of the idea that this is a Chinese uh, virus. I found it particularly hilarious that he has been consistently mocking the idea that there is anything to these theories that this virus may have started somewhere else than China. You mean to tell me the same guy? who still has never fully acknowledged that uh, Russia was the cause of election interference in 2016. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. That somehow this is the guy who is certain, is certain already, when we know basically nothing about what's really happened here, is 100% certain that these conspiracy theories that it might not have started in China must be false. Really? You cannot be serious. I mean, the hypocrisy is just stunning. But that's Donald Trump because this is now in his self-interest. It's in his self-interest for people to say this is a Chinese thing. China didn't give us enough notice. Uh, and, you know, he's already stirred up enough uh, distrust and even hatred of the Chinese over the trade war that this can be effective in keeping his base together. And so far, there's no evidence at all that his base is leaving him. None. Uh, and, and that means that he is still, theoretically, depending on how this all uh, washes out over the next several months, he is still theoretically a potent force in the 2020 election. Doesn't mean he's going to win, but it means you can't count him out yet. And when we come back, I'll talk about the current political situation and what happened yesterday in Florida that I found to be really interesting in the Democratic primaries. But first... Here's an interview with our, uh, the founder of our sponsor. His name is Tom Bauer. They are Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions and salves, and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity, but for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? 
CBD is short for cannabidiol. It, it's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or, or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of the, all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. Is, you know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just you don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at MU Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian. You know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to, to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a news story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and, and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that aren't doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In, in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and, and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a, a, a brand new uh, thing for FDA, 
they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that, that is, again, is, it goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. So tell us, tell us uh, why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks and certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're, we are a higher price product. And the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness. And, you know, what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products and, or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Imbuecbd.com. Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. So yesterday, as if we didn't already know this, Joe Biden clinched the Democratic presidential nomination. I, um, it's amazing how this whole thing shifted so dramatically from Bernie Sanders being on the verge of being the nominee. And just for a moment, think about how close Bernie Sanders came to being president. Seriously, think about this. If, if Joe Biden doesn't win South Carolina as handily as he did, and Bernie Sanders continues his momentum, right now at Best or worst, depending on your perspective, Bernie Sanders would still be the Democratic frontrunner, maybe even having clinched the nomination, maybe not to the point where Joe Biden has, because there would be some resistance. But if that doesn't happen, Bernie Sanders is now the nominee in a situation where our economy has been decimated, even worse than that, technically, devastated, and now... You have an incredible, an increasingly unpopular incumbent with a socialist message that might work. My God, by the way, you know, if Trump's really going to give every American $1,000, isn't that socialism? <laughs> isn't that socialism? Correct. So, so now the argument against Bernie Sanders' socialism is almost gone. I've always felt that the reason why Sanders couldn't be president was because you can't elect a socialist for the first time with a good economy. Well, the good economy is toast. So South Carolina really very likely saved us from a Bernie Sanders presidency because he would be in, in the driver's seat right now in a general election against Donald Trump. But yesterday was the final nail in his coffin because he got crushed in Florida. Now, what I found interesting about Florida was that the voter turnout in Florida, where they have had a very different attitude about the whole coronavirus thing, maybe to their detriment, we'll find out. The voter turnout was actually slightly higher than it was in 2016. Now, some of, in a large portion of that is mail-in voting, but there were huge lines 
of voters in Florida yesterday, partially because some voting uh, poll volunteers didn't show up for fear of the coronavirus, apparently. But voting went on at, at, at least 100% at a normal rate in Florida yesterday. It did not in Illinois. Illinois, the people in Illinois, they just curled up in the fetal position and decided we're not going to vote. Uh, but in Florida, that's not the case. Now, that means that Florida becomes a fascinating test case. Fascinating test case. Because we now have the stats broken down state by state for the coronavirus. And if in the next three weeks, if in the next three weeks we do not see a humongous dramatic change in the numbers in Florida, in my opinion, this will be, in theory, and I'm obviously hoping for this on multiple levels, this in theory would be the smoking gun that we overreacted. Because no place has had life go on closer to normal than Florida. Not, I mean, and voting is one very, very dramatic example. Currently, there are 200, as of yesterday, 217 cases in Florida confirmed with a handful of deaths. So in three weeks' time, two to three weeks, if we don't see a very significant jump in the data in Florida, that I think will be an interesting tell about how effective these tactics are and whether or not they were worth it in the long run. But as far as the politics of this, Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. We already knew that previously, but now we know it 100 percent sure. Donald Trump even referred to him as sleepy Joe Biden within his coronavirus press conference today, which is just it's unbelievable. You cannot be serious. That alone in a normal presidency uh, in the middle of a crisis, and you're referring to your political opponent as sleepy Joe Biden. Uh, you know, I realize with Trump, we're so desensitized that it, it doesn't even impact us, but that's completely inappropriate and unpresidential. And, and to be fair, Trump has actually been fairly presidential, certainly by his standards, in the last few days at these press conferences. And he's gotten some praise for it, even from, from some liberal media outlets. I think he's deserved that. It's too late. He's screwed this up from the beginning, and his presence is why we are where we are because for reasons that I've already outlined. But I still do believe that while Joe Biden is clearly the favorite now, and he could end up winning this in a landslide, depending on how the coronavirus situation uh, pans itself out. But there is still a scenario. It is, as I mentioned, fading. Uh, it is, it is, but it's got a heartbeat. Uh, it, there is a scenario where Trump is able to manipulate this, not necessarily to his advantage, but in a way that allows for his survival because he has turned into this curve and he is changing the rules and he now has enormous government power. He's able to act like a socialist and give people whatever they want. And you know, and you know darn right well, guess who's going to get the best benefit from, from these government handouts? Pennsylvania. Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida. You live in one of those three, uh, those six states, guess what? My guess is you're going to get anything you want from the government in the next uh, six months, seven months, because those are the states that are going to determine, in all likelihood, whether or not Trump gets reelected. So you should not count Trump out. And I, I've always believed that liberals inherently overplay their hand every single time, and that might be happening. However, there is the, the very likelihood that this is now so out of Trump's control, this is going to be so bad in perception and maybe even in reality that there's nothing that he can do. And it's, his reelection is no longer 
anything close to his control. And that's why I'm going to put uh, his current reelection chances at 30 percent. Again, please, no wagering because, you know, you might get the coronavirus if you have any interaction with somebody else. Maybe if you do it by Internet. But uh, maybe we should, should relax those restrictions as a, as a way of boosting morale uh, throughout the country and the world. But, you know, you get the point. Thirty uh, percent chance currently the official individual one podcast chances of Donald Trump being reelected. I do not know what our our programming schedule, our production schedule is going to be going forward. I'm fairly confident we'll be able to at least do this once a week. I do not know if we'll be able to continue to do this twice a week, uh, but uh, stay tuned to our our Twitter handle for news about that. As is always the case, please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual1pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. Until next time, please stay safe, be careful, take precautions, but try to live life. My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.